Uh, The scripture reading today is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, great. Better now? There we are? Cool. Um, Today's my 36th birthday, and clearly I'm not tech savvy. Um, So there you go. John, thank you for the wonderful introduction. You've given me my New Year's resolution to lose some weight. Um, That's fantastic. Tall. You used large an awful lot. Um, So grateful to you for that. Feel really welcome back. no, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, my name is Travis. I'm an elder at Village South. Um, been an elder there almost two years now. Uh, been a part of the Village family since 2015. Um, and so it's always really good to come back and be with you guys in East. I think, when I was reflecting on it this week, um, I think coming back to East kind of feels like getting back together with family at Christmas time. And like, I haven't seen these people in a while, and like, oh, the kids are bigger now, and oh, you're doing, you changed job. You know, it's just like you're kind of catching up with everyone. Um, you've kind of have these markers in life that are a little further along than they used to be, which is really exciting, um, and I enjoy, uh, which is really good. Uh, we're we're going to be in this passage that we just read um, from Colossians 1, which is a series that we just finished in South right before Advent. Um, we, we had a, a really, I really loved going through this series together. Um, I preached this passage on it, and I, I thought it kind of transferred over to this week because um, it was really good. It's, it's about praying for the church, and then um, John was called to worship, said, hey, we just finished talking about praying as a church for a whole year. And I was like, God, okay. Um, this is going to sound redundant. Um, but I hope it doesn't because it's really, really encouraging I found this passage when I was studying it to be really exciting. 
particularly because I felt like the Colossian church really mirrors where Village South was at or is at. And um, the relationship that Paul has with the Colossian church is kind of like our relationship with East. If you're um, kind of unfamiliar with, with the church in Colossians and what happens here, um, what the, the church itself was planted not by Paul, but by a man named Epaphras. He's referenced here in verse 7. And Epaphras actually was in Ephesus when Paul was planting in Ephesus, became a believer in Ephesus, and for whatever reason went back home. And I don't know, he's, he's clearly like a leader in the church, according to like the scripture here, but I don't know if he went back home to plant the church or if he went back home to just go back home, you know, take care of family health matters, new job. I don't know what the deal is, right? But you have this picture of a planted church planting a church. And at the time that Paul's writing this, which is 80, 52, 55, the church in Colossae is around five to 10 years old, like scholars think. And Village South just celebrated our fifth birthday in October. So, and the church in Ephesus isn't that much older, which is kind of where you guys are. So just, there were a lot of mirrors there, and I love when you can come to scripture and see contextual, like you can kind of, when the context mirrors what's going on either in your life or in your relationships, it kind of carries more gravity and more weight to it, which I really, really love. And so what we have here is a, is a passage where Paul is opening up his letter to the Colossian church. It's a church that, as far as we know, he never visited. At the time he's writing, we believe that he's already in prison in Rome, and so it's a church that we don't think he ever actually went to. Um, but he is writing to them, and he loves them. And I love what he says in this passage because it's really encouraging to them, I believe, and I really think it's encouraging for us to hear kind of where Paul's heart is for them. And what we get to see is we get to see him encourage the church, and then we get to see him pray for the church and specifically tell them what he's praying for them for. And so I think it would probably be foolish for me not to pray now, um, and then probably pray at the end, and then pray some more. Um, no, but to, to kind of open with prayer during our time together as we come to this passage, that God would you know, speak to us through this, um, maybe cement some of the things that you guys have been um, unpacking this last year um, with, with prayer and being a praying church, and wanting to kind of humbly come before God um, and seek him and invite him to move and to work into your lives, into um, your area of East Belfast. So let me go ahead and pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you for your word, uh, which is truth. Um, it is the very word of the Lord, and we're grateful for it, just like we said um, at the reading. God, I pray as we hear the words of the scripture, as we kind of uh, look at it and what it can mean for us, we ask questions of ourselves um, in relation to the scriptures. God, I pray that our hearts would be humble um, and our ears very open to hear what you want to say to us through your word and through the Holy Spirit this morning. Father God, I pray you'd speak through me to do this. God, these are words that I need. Um, I was telling John this morning, I, I, I preached this four months ago, and as I was kind of re-preparing this, was really convicted at how much this hadn't changed my life yet, um, which is true, and there's grace for that. And so God, I pray if there's things that I needed to confess and that we need to confess, um, that we would, and in that we would find as we always do, your forgiveness and mercy. Um, God, if there's things that we need to be encouraged in, God, may our hearts be encouraged in joy um, with those things. God, we are your church. Um, we trust this time together to you. 
We pray that you'd be glorified in it, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I'll open with a question that will be rhetorical, but uh, just because I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that wants the like, you know, audience participation thing. But uh, I wonder when the last time you prayed for the church was. Um, when was the last time, and I know we kind of have prayer gatherings and stuff, but even like your like, daily devotional, when was the last time you took time to pray for village or just the church in general? Um, when did you pray for your pastors and elders, your MC leaders, people in your groups? Um, when did you seek God on what um, he's doing in this city and what he wants you to do individually and collectively? And I don't mean to ask the question to the point of conviction or making you guys feel bad, um, but by way of encouragement. Um, because the picture that we get here from Paul of the church is one that I have been encouraged by because I think what we see here from him is the single most effective um, ways that we can see God use us to glorify him, to grow closer to him, and to uh, take the gospel to those around us. We see here in the, in the passage that Paul opens up, um, introducing himself as he always does, and then addressing and encouraging the church. He starts with encouragement. He says in verse 2, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul's encouragement starts with him affirming the identity of the Colossian church. Um, I, I'm not going to camp out too much on, on this. I could. Um, the idea of, of identity culturally is uh, very relevant. Um, we live in a world. I work with university students for my job um, doing a campus ministry thing. Uh, at least the age of university students, are they don't know who they are. They're constantly trying to figure it out. Um, culturally, I think we're living in a world that's trying to define ourselves by what we do, what we like, what our opinions are. We, we build our identities backwards. For the first time in history, really the history of the world, identity is individually determined. Not kind of, not, it's not who you're part of, what nation you're part of, what family you come from. Um, rather, it's who, who am I? Who am I meant to be? I need to figure out myself, find myself, and then I build my community around me with people who have similar self-determined identities. And that is, the, the, the picture of identity in the Bible is the complete opposite of that. Not only is it not self-determined or collectively determined, it's given by God to people. And so what Paul is doing here when he opens with identity, and I don't think he necessarily intended to do this, but when he addresses them as saints and brothers and calls them in Christ, he's starting with who you are. And everything else he talks about in, in the inputting of this letter builds on that identity. The idea of being saints and sainthood is one of the most common references to followers of Jesus in the New Testament, which is funny because collectively we refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters, sometimes just good and right. Um, as Christians, followers of Jesus, all things are true. But the idea that the Bible talks about us being saints is interesting it's being saints most often is interesting because I think it, it, it's, just, it's just weightier to me. That, that position of sainthood that we have because of Christ is, is amazing. 
Um, I think it helps, when I reflect on it, it helps me kind of reject the idea that I'm, you know, still a sinner, but rather that God's making me something new, right? Um, and then he talks about them being brothers in Christ, or brothers and sisters, some translations have, and I love that identity as well because it, it encourages us in how we ought to relate to one another. It's familial. It's not hierarchical. I think I just butchered that word. It's not, there's not positions of power and authority and someone's over me and I'm under someone else and it's not a comp, you don't show up on a Sunday competing with those around you. Rather, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all equal. And in Christ, um, and, and it's all because we're in Christ. I'm gonna get into the gospel bit of it later and how the gospel kind of unpacks all this, but it's really something fascinating to reflect on the fact that our identity that we have in Christ, the fact that we're a new creation, um, it, it all kind of, it all is, comes from what he did on the cross for us. Later on in Colossians, and we're not gonna get there, um, but Paul talks about how there's no um, slave nor free, uh, there's no Jew or Gentile. He talks about how there is, there's no parties anymore because of Jesus. There's no better thans or worse thans, no more and less worthy, but in Christ, um, we're all the same. It's a very egalitarian. It's a beautiful picture, especially in this time, uh, in this particular time. So it opens by affirming their identity. Secondly, he encourages them by praising their faith and love. He says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. I, my prayer, man, I would love if someone from the outside took a look at Village South and also you guys in Village East and said, yeah, they've got a lot of things going on, but man, one of the most remarkable things about them is their faith in Christ and their love for one another. Like, I, I, I don't know that I would want a different something to be a different marker of who we are um, as the people of God in general, but really as a church and a local expression of God's love to the people around us. For them to come and see our love for one another and our faith and be like, there's a lot going on, but those are the two things that are most remarkable. So he encourages them in their faith and love, and finally he reminds them of the gospel. He talks about the hope laid up for them in heaven. And later on, um, he talks about how the gospel has changed their church and how it's really changing places all over the world, which is a really, again, I think it's a really cool experience because the Colossian church hasn't had the experience that even maybe the church in Ephesus has where they were with Paul and Paul's like, hey, I've planted here and I've planted here and here's what God's doing here and here's what God's doing here. They just, just kind of blossomed up because of Epaphras' ministry. And he's like, hey, what's happening with you guys is happening everywhere. And, and um, we're a church plant, so we're, we're kind of in the blossoming stage right now. We're not in the planting other churches and beginning to see what's happening everywhere else stage quite yet, but it's such an encouragement when we can kind of pick our eyes up from, the, from really the hard work of trying to like plant a church and get it off the ground to be like, oh, look what God's doing in East. Look what God's doing. Um, we just had uh, Philip Murr come over from Paris. He's planting a church. Um, in an area there, and he was kind of talking about what's happening there, and you're like, oh, wow. Like, it's so encouraging to see how God's moving in other places. And to know that the gospel change that's happening among your church is happening everywhere. Um, so he encourages them with this, and then he goes from this encouragement of identity 
of praising their faith and love and reminding the gospel, and then goes into verse 9, which I think is kind of the pivot verse for me. He says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. Oh, sorry, I just lost my spot. He's asking me to fill the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's response to the church and the first thing he tells the church after his encouragement to them is, I have been praying for you. I think this is remarkable for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is not my response to things. If I was a church planter and I heard that someone in a church I had planted was planting somewhere else, the first thing I would do is pick up the phone and be like, how's it going? How can I help? What can I do to help you do this good thing that's happening? But that's not what Paul does. I mean, presumably he probably does some of that, but what he does instead is like, hey, ever since we heard, we've been praying. Paul's been praying for them ever since... um, he heard about them, so that's, we're looking at maybe five years of constant prayer for the church there. I don't know if this is the first letter to the Colossians, but if it is, you're talking about five years of constant, consistent prayer before he ever decides, I'm going to like chime in, encourage, input, right? Which is really interesting, because we don't do that. We're, we're so quick to work, to chip in, to do, to serve, to, it's all good intentions. But that's not what Paul does. And I, again, I don't know, when he says constantly praying, I don't know if Paul's got like a timer on his phone and at 8.30 he's like having a cup of coffee and like time to pray for the Colossian church right now, or if it's more like an as they come to mind, I've been praying for you. But again, I go back to the opening question, how often do we pray for the church? As we think about things that are happening, do we pray? When you think about, hey, this, you know, we've been having this problem, something in our, someone from our MC hasn't been coming for a while, I don't know what's going on with their life, is your response prayer? Or how can I fix the problem? And it's not a bad thing to try to help, to serve, to fix, whatever, but, but do I want to pray? Paul prays for, there's a few reasons why I think Paul prays that are important. Number one, I think Paul recognizes that the church is the Lord's and that the Lord keeps it. The temptation that we have when we use language like our church is we begin to think, even subconsciously, that this is our responsibility. And it's not. Village East is God's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not your church because you've been coming here for however long. You're a part of it, for sure, but it's God's. And it's God's responsibility to keep the church. And so Paul, again, I'm going to kind of use some holy imagination here, but if he hears about a church plant in Colossae, I can imagine that he probably feels a responsibility to Epaphras and probably to the church there to help out. But what Paul actually recognizes is that what happens in Colossae ultimately is up to God and not to me. And so he prays. The second reason I think that Paul prays is because Paul recognizes that the church should look like Christ and act according to God's will. And by this I mean that we can 
be tempted to believe that the church should look like we want it to look and do the things we want it to do. I'd, I, I've been an elder for two years at South now, um, which has been a, an experience. I'm not going to go into it, uh, whatever, but the, there's things that happen. And, and when you're an elder, you have the sort of the position to make change, right? I would like, I think this could be, look like this or this could look like that. And if I engage with whatever without praying, I come to it with however good intentions, but with my will superseding God's. Does that make sense? And so when we pray for the church, when Paul prays for the church, and really when we pray in general, we come to the Lord with our will and a recognition that your will be done. And even if we don't pray that explicitly, that's what ends up happening as we pray for things with, with consistency. One of my favorite pictures of prayer in the Bible um, is Jesus at, Geth- at Gethsemane. Because he comes to the Father, and he and the Father are one, right? We like, I'm not going like to break some bad theology here, but he comes to the Father like, look, if there is another way, please let it happen. Please, is there another way? And there isn't. And, he, so he, and what he says at the end is, not my will, but yours be done. And in that prayer, his heart united with the Father's heart went to the cross with joy for the salvation of the world, right? And so that same picture, I think, is what we need when we pray for our own church. We can have things that we want villages to look like, ministries we think should be happening, things that we feel like should happen on Sunday morning or change the kids' ministry or whatever else. And that's all good and fine and probably super well-intentioned, but if we don't pray about it, we begin to try to shape the church to look something like we want it to look like instead of like Christ and according to our own will instead of God's. We're in danger of that. Thirdly, I believe Paul prays and recognizes that the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can change people's hearts. The ministry of the church is in the business of heart change. However, and ironically, we as people can't actually do any of that. Right? We pray or we want to see East Belfast change. We want to see lost people come to Jesus. And we can do a lot of really cool things and have a lot of really interesting strategies and programs and ministries. But for a heart to actually change requires the Holy Spirit to work. And that happens, the only kind of way we can make that happen or encourage that to happen is through prayer, right? I think about it even less complicated. I don't even have the power to change my own heart. Like, I'm not good at it. And I can try to set disciplines and accountability and all these kind of things with different people to try to help me like, change the behavior. But what's underneath it is a heart that still wants to do the thing that I know I ought not to do. And only the Holy Spirit can change someone's heart. And so if, if the church in Colossae is going to grow, and if more people are going to come to know Jesus, and, it's, and, and they're going to share their faith with other people and have a desire to do that, it's not going to come through a well-written letter from Paul it's going to come because the Holy Spirit's moving and working in people's lives. And then fourthly, Paul prays because he recognizes that he has limitations, but God does not. I've learned this too as an elder. I would love, 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 love to get a coffee with everyone in our church every week to hear how they're doing, to pray with them, and to encourage them. I cannot do that. I would have loved to spend more time preparing the sermon this week, but I did not and cannot, right? Like, we're humans and we're limited. 
If you read the epistles, Paul is always, almost every letter, he's like, hey, I love you guys. I want to come see you. Hopefully we can make it work. And most of those churches, he never actually can go back to. The Colossian church, he like never went to. Because he's a human being. And he can only be in one place at one time. And only be writing one letter at one time. Right? Like that's, there's a limitation to what we can do. What he can do. However, you know who's not limited? God. So when Paul prays, he, his ministry is infinitely multiplied because he's asking the person who can actually make real change happen and who's not limited by having to be like one person at a time or to be one place at one time, but can do it all, all at the same time with all power, right? Like he's tapping into something way more effective and capable than he is when he's praying and asking God to do these things. There's a couple things that I think that we can learn from the reality that Paul is praying for the Colossian church. The first is, we also ought to pray for the church. Which is why, again, I opened with the question, when was the last time you prayed for the church, right? We should follow Paul's example and pray for the church. And I think we should pray for Village East, pray for your church, yes, good and right. But like, I think you should pray for any church as they come to mind, right? Like, you know, churches that you're partnering with, church plants throughout the Acts 29 network. If you ever think of us in South, please pray for us. We, we need your prayers. We're, we covet them. We, we're grateful for them. If you think about the place where your parents go to church on a Sunday, pray for it. Because your parents go there, right? You, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, the only church in the world isn't Village East. And so, as, as it comes to mind, like, pray for, pray for the church. The most effective thing you can do is to pray for the church. The second thing I think we can learn from Paul's example of praying for the church is that we need prayer. Not that we ought to be doing it, but that we need it. And so, well, what do, what do we need? Like, what is he actually praying for? Well, the first thing that Paul prays for the church is that they would know God's will. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of God's will in this passage um, is, uh, I, I think, a little more comprehensive than maybe we give it credit for. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, and really even young Christians ask this question, is like, what does God want me to do? which is effectively a question of God's will, right? Like, what do you want me to do? We usually use that question to apply to, like, what job should I take? Should I make this change? Should my kids go to school here? Um, how do I handle this particular relationship at work with this coworker that's not, you know, we're not really getting on well? And I think that's good and right. Yes, like, we should be praying for those things. Um, but I think what Paul's talking about here is is kind of tapping into God's will sort of more universally and globally. Um, the commentator Alistair uh, I. Wilson, in the, in the commentary I was reading, prepping for this, um, from the Gospel Coalition said this, we should understand God's will primarily as his grand purpose, his missio dei, rather than the precise details of relating to life choices of individual Christians. Although, the latter need not be excluded 
from the sense of the term. What he's saying is, and what Paul's praying for, is that we would understand God's big picture will. God's grand universal plan for the world. And the reason why he's praying for them to understand that and to have a knowledge of that is because when we do understand that, it actually helps us make those other decisions of where our kids are going to school and how I'm handling my relationship with my coworker and what vocation and job I should be taking. It informs, the big one informs the smaller decisions. In reality, a knowledge of his will is understanding God's heart for evangelism. Understanding that God wants every person everywhere who is lost to come to faith. But it's not evangelism in like how we should be communicating it verbally, but in how we're living our lives. A knowledge of the will of God leads to questions like this. Who should I be sharing with and what should I say to them? That's kind of a practical version of evangelism that we have. It should also lead to questions like, how should my life change? My actions, my habits, and my relationships. What am I doing with my money? How am I raising my kids? What do I read or listen to or watch on TV? And how do these things help me participate in God's big picture plan? They're questions that we all must ask and answer as an individual and as families and as a whole church. I think as I reflect on this a lot, it, it caused me to question in my own life and really as a church, what makes us distinctive from those around us? And I don't think we should necessarily make changes in our lives just to be different. Um, that can lead to like legalism, like you know, clean living, and like this is not a bad thing, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it can cause us to like, be like, behaviorally we act like this and we're not like you. It can kind of create a rift. But at the same time, there should be things about us that are distinctive from those around us. Um, my wife, Lauren, who's not here, I apologize for those who wanted to see her more than me, um, and really our kids, who I'm sure is probably the highlight of our family. Um, but she studied classics in university, and part of her studying of classics was, was primarily Latin, where she actually had the opportunity to read like different letters from this time of Roman officials to other people. Some of these things that got preserved, right? And it was kind of funny, because in the context of academia, like, they don't really care. But as a Christian... Which she was, when she was reading this, she was like, oh, this is amazing. Because it's like this really cool insight of like what the government at the time thought about the Christian church. And so you would read letters about them being like, look, this, these Christians, this, this is a problematic thing because like they don't recognize Caesar as king and da, 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 da. However, the way they've been caring for the poor in our province has really helped like, we don't have a problem with homelessness or, or whatever, right, at the time because the church was just doing that. And they're like, so while we want them to go away, we're also really kind of glad they're here. And it's just like, right, it's a really interesting picture, but the church was distinctive in their generosity and charity. Does that make sense? Um, and so it, it, it begs the question when we think about the knowledge of his will, how are we distinctive? What are we doing that sets us apart? How do we look like Jesus and not like the world as we participate um, in God's big picture plan? And he says to do this in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We need spiritual wisdom and understanding to do this because it's not really something we can determine on our own. And ultimately, we're talking about God's plan, not ours, right? And so we need his input on how we should be participating in all of this. 
In other words, we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to guide and direct us to be part of God's, or the missio Dei, right? The mission of God. To understand what God wants us to do in Belfast, in South Belfast, in East Belfast, in your workplace, in your family, or with your friends. We need the Holy Spirit to be informing this. Hence, we need to be praying that we know the will of God. Now, I'm going to kind of reference, and Paul kind of gets into this passage, and if you read this passage, you might begin to think that this is a list of things to do. But the encouragement that I have for us this morning, the takeaway I want us to take away, is not that we know the will of God, or that we do the will of God, but that we pray to know the will of God. You guys get the distinction that I'm kind of trying to make here? Paul is praying for the church for these things, and we ought to pray for these things as well. So he prays that they would know the will of God. Secondly, he prays that they would do the will of God. Look at, uh, look at verse 10 with me. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Question for you. Did that description sound like your Christian walk with God? Because it doesn't sound like mine. I'll read it again. Does my Christian walk sound like I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God? No. But that's why we pray. Again, it's not doing this, it's praying for it. And as we pray for it, then we'll begin to see it happening because God will begin to do it in our lives. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, I think, is a really beautiful way to think about it. The connect, it's, it's the connection between knowing the will of God and living it out. And ultimately, it's living a life that honors God. Spiritual understanding should lead to behavior that honors the Lord. I'll say that one again. Spiritual understanding, which I would qualify as knowing God and who he is and his character, understanding the gospel and what it means for us and how it transforms our lives, and understanding our need for God and what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit should lead to behaviors that honor the Lord. How do we know if we're doing it? Paul says so. We know we're doing it because, we, because they'll be bearing fruit in every good work and an increase in the knowledge of God. In 11 and 12, he further qualifies what this looks like and what we need when he prays for strength from the Lord, endurance, patience, joy, thankfulness. Does this sound like the fruits of the Spirit? Right? This suggests that to live in a manner worthy of the Lord involves um, us living in the power of the Holy Spirit. To, to, to live a life that looks like this doesn't actually look like us doing this and living this out in our lives. It actually looks like us walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing the fruit of the Spirit happening in our lives. It also suggests that there's going to be difficulty and suffering. You don't endure 
and have patience with joy, good experiences. You endure and have patience in bad ones. So what Paul's getting at here is his prayer for them is that the manner in which they live, the translation of their knowing God's will and doing it, would be so good, so fruitful, and so pure as to even see them through difficulty. I think this is very hard to do sometimes. Um, And it's especially hard to do when you're living in your own power. I experience this in my own life. I I know, I become aware that I've been living my Christian life just doing my own thing in my own power when a hard time hits. And the hard time doesn't have to look like much. It can just look like my beautiful daughter transitioning to the terrible twos. And then I'm like, okay, I, I have not been relying on God enough. <laughs> I need to do that more. I do not having patience with a baby. I need to do that more, right? It's, it doesn't have to look something, like something severe. And it can. Was it C.S. Lewis that said, like, uh, God whispers in or whatever and then screams in our pain kind of thing, right? Like, it, it, he can get our attention through, like, big tragedies. But in the small stuff, even, we can be reminded that we need to be relying on God and inviting the Holy Spirit and begging the Holy Spirit to be guiding us and empowering us each and every moment. Another thing I love about this too, in verse 11, before I move on to the third point here, is that Paul prays that the church would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Whenever I read according to an attribute of God, it, I, it causes me to pause and reflect because I think we just read over it like, pray for power, and might, moving on, right? Just kind of breeze over it. But when you think about the idea of praying according to the power and might of God, there's like a gravity to it, right? Um, I explained this uh, last time I preached on this this way. If my son, Connor, who's six years old, gave me money according to his riches, he could be as generous as he possibly can and I would be 16 pounds richer, (laughs) right? And so it's not a question of his generosity, it's the according to what he actually has to give. Now, if pick your favorite billionaire gave according to their riches, right, they might be negligibly generous, they might not miss it at all, but according to the riches by which they would give, what I receive would be life-changing. Right? And so when we read the Bible and it talks about us being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, where is the limit on the might of God? There is none. So when you think about circumstances in your life, ministries that you're doing, whatever it may be, and you are depending on the, and you need the might of God to it, there is no circumstance or situation that you will not be given what you need to see it through. Does that make sense? And so it's a beautiful prayer. So, recapping. Paul prays for the church. We ought to pray, and we ought to recognize we need prayer. We ought, he prays that we know the will of God. We ought to pray that we would know God's will too. He prays that they would do the will of God. We ought to pray to do the will of God too. Again, don't hear do these things this morning. Please don't. Here, pray 
for it, right? And then finally, he prays that they would live in their new gospel identity. Look in verses 12 through 14 with me. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul returns to reminding the church of who they are in Christ because of the gospel. He starts by saying they're qualified. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I didn't go into the Greek on this one. Um, again, I wish I had more time uh, to prepare the sermon, right? But I loved the use of the word qualified because qualified means you deserve it, which is ironic because when we read the Bible, we don't, right? The whole point of the gospel is you don't deserve it. But Paul says you're qualified, but that God has qualified you, right? So if you're qualified for a job, it means you have the education and the experience and the skills and the knowledge to do the job. You deserve the job because you're qualified to do it. Now, what qualifies you to the inheritance of the saints in light? It's not the way I lived my life last Saturday, right? It's not, it's not what I bring. It's not my skills, my experience, my education and knowledge, right? Rather, it's the work of Christ. I, and I just love the picture because I can look at the gospel and be like, I don't deserve this. And I don't. There's a reality to that. But also because of Jesus, now we, we do. Like, the inheritance, the sainthood that we talked about earlier, like because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, but because of Jesus, it is ours. Like, how crazy is that? How beautiful is that? We're qualified to share. Who are we sharing it with? Jesus himself and one another. How cr- it's crazy. Sorry, I'm kind of being redundant here. But it really is something to marvel at. The Father has qualified us to share the inheritance of the saints in light. The second thing that he has done is he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The ideas of being delivered, you can put the word rescued in there and transferred. Talk about who we were and who we are, right? It's the kind of before and after picture. Delivery, being delivered or rescued means that we were captive. We were part of another kingdom. We were under another ruler. We had a different destiny. And now we've been transferred to the kingdom of Jesus himself, his beloved son. I'm reading, I finished last year reading um, a book called Little Pilgrim's Progress with our kids. Um, it's 300 pages, so I feel very accomplished that I went through a 300-page book with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, it's beautifully written, by the way, it, like illustrated and stuff. Um, it's obviously built on Paul, uh, um, the original uh, Pilgrim's Progress, but with like animal, like forest animal cartoon character. It's really cute. It's a really, really, really good book. But the thing I loved about the book is it gives such a beautiful picture of how these characters who were kind of in the, they were in the city of destruction, right, and had a different destiny, by invitation of the king, 
are invited to journey to the celestial city. And they, it's a beautiful picture of how on this pilgrimage they live worthy of the king. And the, one of the characters you follow is named Christian, which, again, it's, it's, it is an allegory, but a not very subtle one. Um, but, like, the character Christian, you see in these episodes of this journey how he moves from doing things kind of on his own or trying to trust his own wisdom for different decisions to really trusting the king in every circumstance to the point where near the end of the journey, he's encouraging other pilgrims that he meets to do the same. So it's like a picture of discipleship. It's really, it's a really cool book if you want to learn something by reading a kid's book. Um, but I think it was a beautiful picture of us living in our gospel identity as well because you see how we move and are delivered and transferred from this kingdom of darkness to um, being part of the kingdom of the sun. And then finally it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Um, I love the idea of redemption. I, I, I was praying this morning about it because I was kind of working through this weekend and kind of getting prepped for this and preparing my heart for preaching and all that kind of stuff. And just was like confessing lots of sins. And in, the, in, in it was just finding through the Holy Spirit the, the forgiveness of God. I, like, as I said it, said it out loud, hey, God, I was really impatient with my kids. I yelled at, you know, Callum for doing this, and Connor was doing this, and I've been trusting my own strength for this, that, and the other thing, and all these kind of things. It just was like forgive. It just felt, felt palpably the forgiveness of God every single time. And we have that in Christ. My prayer for you guys, my prayer for Village South, and my hope is that it's your prayer for the church as well, is that we would pray that we know God's will, that we would do his will, that God would show us what we ought to be doing, that he would then strengthen us to do it, and that he would help us live in our gospel identity, because it's so easy to not do that. Um, John was saying this morning that this is uh, the first Sunday of the year, um, and as he was mentioning, he's like, oh, I feel like a lot of pressure and the thought hit me like, hey, this is great. This is going to be the best sermon you guys have heard this year. Um, and then the Lord reminded me that it's also going to be the worst one that you've heard this year, which is kind of convicting. Um, but my hope is that as we go into 2024 as a church, like collectively, together, um, that the things that you guys have been unpacking last year about being a, like, a dependent, prayer-filled church um, would continue on, that the prayers you pray for your church would be that God would show you what you guys ought to be doing in the ways you love one another and in the community around you, that he would strengthen and empower you through his Holy Spirit to do that this year, um, and that he would help you live out the gospel identity that God's given you. And I think if we pray for those things, Whatever plan you want, we you put together, right, um, will prosper, right. Whatever things that God shows you to do, and then you go do, you'll see Him move and work. And village won't be glorified, but God will. And it's not going to make village's name great, but God's name will be made great. So that's my prayer for our church too. It, um, it, but it's my prayer for you guys this morning. Um, I'm going to pray that prayer right now.
and then I think invite John up to um, do communion. Um, <clears throat> Father God, hear our prayer this morning. We desire that you would make known to us your will for us as a church. That we would know how we ought to live, what we ought to do, what villages particular piece of being part of your missio day is of your mission what is what is village east's part in that to play god make that clear to us and as you do give us the strength and the resources and the patience and the endurance your holy spirit to do what to then do what you've called us to do and God, may this year, as we, as we better know your will, and as we trust you to help us to do your will, may we also live out of our gospel identity. Qualify us. May we remember and celebrate and tell others about the deliverance we've received and how we've been transferred to your kingdom, how our destiny is now different. God, may we glorify you in everything that we do. Thank you for our time together this morning, God. Um, we thank you that this is your church, that you keep it. Um, and we want to see you do great things. So as we humbly come before you and invite you in to that, help us to do faithfully do our part as we join you in the renewal of all things here in Belfast. It's your name we pray. Amen.